from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. This weekend, we're on the road bringing you the show from Top Producer Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. A tradition of honoring some of the best in agriculture carries on this year with a family whose story is quite the tale. I was diagnosed with cancer, and his mother said, well, son, you got two choices. You can stay in D.C., we're going to sell this if your father gets any sicker, or you can come back home to run it. We'll introduce you to the next generation creating the next chapter in their farm and who was named the 2023 Top Producer of the Year. A key ingredient in soil health and we're ground truthing what works for farmers in their fields. We've kind of figured out a way to not only cut back on the weed pressure, but we're also cutting back on the amount of chemicals that we're using. Michelle Rook shows us how to flip your soil this weekend. And in John's world. Real U.S. farmers. Now for the news. With war raging in Ukraine and supply issues, many thought natural gas prices would remain high this winter, but that hasn't been the case. In the past month, prices plummeted 50%. The reason behind the implosion is partially due to soaring U.S. production and high storage levels, but also what's happening in Europe. The markets and traders were betting on high demand in Europe. However, that did not materialize and took the air out of the markets. However, demand is expected to stay strong this year. The Energy Information Administration says natural gas prices are expected to grow more than 2%. Well, one of the end users that may be buying natural gas at these lower price levels are fertilizer producers. The natural gas price drop has taken the pressure off the global fertilizer market. One fertilizer expert says last year fertilizer supplies were down from the top global producer, Russia, due to the Black Sea War. Plus, production of other products were down in China and Europe, which also pushed prices to record levels. But that situation has now flipped. And now this year we're going into it. The markets feel almost to a certain extent oversupplied. Demand feels like it can continue to wait and hold off. Nobody's worried about logistics. It's, it is a much calmer, more normal marketplace today than where we were 12 months ago. Linville predicts those lower prices will hold into spring planting, but he recommends that if farmers can lock in fertilizer prices against grain prices at a profit, that they should pull the trigger, especially since there could be logistical issues this spring with the reduced barge traffic on the Mississippi River. We will take a much deeper dive into fertilizer outlook coming up in our marketing roundtable. U.S. Ag Trade officials were in Mexico this week hoping to solve recent issues about genetically engineered corn. The concern, Mexico's pending ban on GMO corn by 2024. USDA Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs Alexis Taylor and U.S. Chief Agricultural Negotiator Doug McCallop leading the talks, saying in a statement they continue to engage with their Mexican counterparts to address their grave concerns about the country's biotechnology policies. They labeled proposed changes offered by Mexico is not sufficient, with Mexico's approach on biotech crops still not grounded in science. U.S. officials warned if the matter is not resolved, the U.S. would consider all options, including taking formal steps to enforce rights under the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Mexico recently saying it would hold off on implementing the ban until 2025. But the U.S. dairy industry is getting behind another government plan, one that would benefit dairy producers. 
USDA announcing it will make an additional round of payments to dairy farmers under the Pandemic Market Volatility Assistance Program. It's for production not originally covered under the initial effort. Payments will total nearly $100 million. You see details on your screen. These payments will aid medium-sized and larger producers who missed out on the first round of assistance in 2021. National Milk Producers Federation saying the effort will aid thousands of dairy producers who otherwise would have absorbed the losses. Well, that's it for the news. Brad Rippey warned us last weekend that it could be an active end of January in terms of weather, and we saw another winter storm this week. But is that just the tip of the iceberg? We'll have a check of weather next. U.S. Farm Report on the Road at the Top Producer Summit is brought to you by Ag Resource Management, financing agriculture differently. Let's grow. By Channel Seed, a partner in your fields and in your success, and by Nutrien Premium Fertilizer Technologies, delivering what growers need to optimize their yields and return on investment. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing, with five models ranging from 1,300 to the large 4,200 gallon and the ability to provide an excellent spread pattern, H&S has a top shot side discharge manure spreader to fit your operation. Find out more at the H&S website. Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Chuck Kiever filling in this weekend. Chuck, last weekend we talked on the show about how January was shaping up for a very active ending in terms of weather this week definitely delivered in that department. All right, let's take a look at your root zone. Thankfully, the West Coast is finally moist. We've been waiting for that. You can see here out in California, a lot of that heavier precipitation has absorbed or run off into the ground. But in the center part of the country, it is still dry over by Dodge City. Exceptional drought here. That is a big deal. And we'd like to put a dent in that sometime. It's right in the heart of the country. Okay, let's take a look at precipitation. The 28th through the 31st below normal on the West Coast above normal here in association with a couple storms that'll push through during during the week and then some clipper systems moving through the Great Lakes. Overall, though, the big cold energy is still bottled up in Canada. We will see, though, that colder air work its way down into the western part of the country. It will be mild off to the eastern, the southeast part of the country. But the cold air will work its way down enough that when these clipper systems work their way across the United States, it's going to lay down some snowfall. And then we'll get a couple storms that brew and push up through the southeast, and that's going to lay down some decent precipitation underneath the thunderstorms. All right, the precipitation forecast for the next 10 days. These are the thunderstorms I'm talking about. It's going to lay down potentially three plus inches of rain. And then up to the north, this is the snowfall in a liquid precipitation forecast that you can see here. Now, if you lay the snowfall forecast, you can see what I'm talking about here. So we're going to get anywhere worth from three to six to 12 inches, especially out in the mountains that lay themselves down across the country and through the Great Lakes, courtesy of these clipper systems, the Alberta clippers. They slide their way across the country and give us about oh, one to six inches, depending on where that snow falls. So that's the snowfall estimate. Here's Monday, January 23rd. You can see the frontal boundary and that storm again with that front. Anytime these frontal boundaries push through, you have that opportunity for showers, okay? And up to the north, then we have all of the snow. And again, we're going to see snowfall 
just linger. It's like a train coming across the northern part of the country with clipper systems. Okay, that's on Wednesday. How about Friday? Friday, January 27th, we have snow again up in the northeast. Another clipper system brewing out here to work its way across the country. Now, the big thing about next week is we're going to start to see that cold air start to work its way down. So areas around Chicago are going to see lows in the single digits and highs only in the teens, like Thursday or Friday of this week. So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch below normal out to the west, as I had mentioned. And this is March through January through March precipitation. We have below normal conditions out down to the south and southwest and above normal up to the north. How about that for the week ahead in weather? Yes, we've got snow and we've got rain precipitation. It's going to be an interesting week. All right, let's toss it back to time. Thanks, Chuck. Well, from natural gas prices seeing a spike to a firsthand account of just how big Brazil's crop could really be this year. Our marketing roundtables are with Dan Bossy, Matt Bennett, and Sam Taylor. That discussion happens here from Top Producer Summit right after the break. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report here from Top Producer in Nashville. Great panel lined up to not only talk about commodity prices, but also input prices and possibly where we're heading amidst some of the uncertainty there. Dan, I want to start with you because you recently made a trip to Brazil. You kind of ground truth some of these estimates that we're getting about the South America crop. So the question we all want to know is, how good is Brazil's crop this year? Brazil is really good, Tyne. It's a, it's a record crop. If you think about Brazil, we think the crop is all of 154 million tons. That's a million tons above the USDA. And, and as harvest is starting in Mato Grosso, the yield data that's coming through, they're about 9% harvested today is, is, is record. So as we go south, it'll be a little bit more questionable of Rio Grande, which has been too dry, but the northern half of Brazil is really good. Matt, I mean, that, this isn't really news. We knew Brazil was good. We knew Brazil was setting on a record crop. Is this, do you think, already baked into the prices that we're seeing right now? I mean, this has been more of a soybean meal story than anything because Argentina was dry. And so obviously you know that Argentina puts quite a bit of soybean meal, usually 50% or more, out on the world market. So, uh, you know, you saw the soybean meal take off and go around December 1st. Uh, bean market was heavily supported by that. Uh, but whenever you look at the grand scheme of things, what Dan's saying, I mean, South American production is going to be up overall. And you have to understand we're building world stocks, even at a time when Argentina had a really tough weather pattern. So, you know, you can't uh, get too bold up just based on Argentine uh, weather. Well, Sam, I know the biggest concern right now for growers is, okay, if we do see these prices continue to retreat and see some pressure, you know, where are we going to see input prices head? And I know that's something you explore. Let's specifically talk about fertilizer. We've seen natural gas come down. Do you think fertilizer prices continue to come down? Uh, I think that's our, our bias, our base case scenario, is that you still see some downward pricing momentum in the potash and the phosphate market. Uh, nitrogen is always going to be a little bit of a wild card, probably geared towards some downward pricing pressure in the first half of the year with that unknown about what happens in the European market with regard to energy prices, potentially causing some kind of volatility at some point. Um, but as with everything, we are waiting on the Brazilian market. Brazilian pricing for fertilizers tends to be a little bit of a lead indicator to global prices, primarily because of their um, import needs relative to other geographies. Um, so. While there's downward pricing momentum, near term and at the moment, um, depending on the demand out of Brazil, we could see some flattening in that. 
some kind of correction, but I think the bias would still be to some double-digit downward price and momentum over the coming months. Dan, but the reality today is we have retailers that are setting on what it sounds like overpriced inputs, right? Yeah. And so we are still seeing high inputs at the farm level. So as a producer, hearing how good of a crop we are seeing in, in, in South America, question marks about Argentina, but what are you telling producers right now? What should their game plan be for 2023? Well, I think first we need to start in 2022. I would tell the room you probably need to be sold out of corn and soybeans for 2022. I don't see any reason to be storing old crop corn and soy. That being said, I think we need to uh, think ahead to 2023. In the last two years, it paid to be relatively bullish, and that was for demand reasons. This was a supply rally. This is because of Argentina, a USDA estimate that was lower than expected. We think that supply peak has come in, and unless somebody else has another weather problem, I think selling December corn between 6 and 6.20 of next year uh, and, and November beans at 13.80 to 14.20 makes a lot of sense. Matt, you along those lines too? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the January 12th report essentially gave a little bit of a bolster to the old crop market. I mean, you see a 1242 carry and obviously 8.9% stocks to use is quite snug, but at the same time, you took 185 million bushels of demand away. And I think that starts to spell issues whenever you move, you know, 1242 even into the supply and demand balance sheet for next year. And you start running the math, uh, even if you increase demand somewhat, 175 to 180 bushel yield, you're going to have a hard time getting below $2 billion. So I'm really concerned that uh, we're going to base too many of our decisions in 2023 on 2021 and 22 profit margins. We need to get that out of our head. Sam, how long does it take for some of these prices that we're seeing then on the global level to trickle down to the farm level and see some of these input prices start to retreat? Uh, it's, it's quite spotty. It will come. It will come. We saw some inland prices taken down 10%. Um, at the wholesale level just a couple of weeks ago, and I think that that's probably reflective of what's happening in the Brazilian market. So it will come, but it won't be instant. There's, I don't know, there's a few weeks lag, month lag kind of dynamic. Okay, well, we've talked a lot about supply on commodity prices, but we need to get in demand. We need to get into China and look longer term at China as well. We'll do that later on the show, but please stay with us. We'll be back with more U.S. Farm Report in just a moment. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Closing Wheels provide quicker emergence and are more consistent in dry conditions than any other closing wheels. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. Well, Joe Burrow may be preparing to take on the Kansas City Chiefs this weekend, but recent reports say he also has his eye on farmland. Along with a few other athletes, they recently purchased a piece of Iowa farmland as an investment, and reports say that it may be just the start. But who can legally buy farm ground in the U.S.? John Phipps sheds a light on the matter this weekend. Much ink and many pixels have been wasted, in my opinion, on rants about people other than U.S. farmers owning U.S. farmland. Surprisingly, critics are just as hard on wealthy Americans as foreigners. The target of the day is Bill Gates, but that opposition is almost identical to the boogeyman of my prime, Ted Turner. Then, of course, there is the outrage over anyone from China owning U.S. farmland, despite their tiny splinter of ownership, most of which came with Smithfield Foods. 
This outrage is tiresome, especially after tedious repetition. It seems little more than an attempt to solidify an image of American farmers as perennial victims. If American agriculture sincerely opposed non-farmer ownership of farmland, I think we would see laws to make that illegal, like they have in India. Not just corporate ownership prohibitions, which have not fared well on the few states that have tried them, but straightforward, outright bans on non-farmer ownership. It will be simple. Just place a bouncer at the door of every land auction or real estate closing and make sure only real U.S. farmers can buy, which raises a slight problem. There are no qualifications to be a farmer in the U.S., no licenses or permits, no apprenticeship common in many countries, no formal ag training or experience, no solemn oaths or professional membership. In short, a farmer is somebody who calls herself a farmer. There is also the issue of the rights of the farmland seller. Any law that restricts to whom they can sell strikes me as an economic taking, which is frowned upon by our Constitution. With no legal standards to identify real U.S. farmers, anybody qualifies. The minuscule amounts of farmland owned by multi-billionaires or non-Americans out of our roughly 900 million farmland acres clearly are not impacting our national ag economy or culture, especially since the overwhelming portion of that sliver is covered with trees or grazing range, not corn or beans. Besides, in case you haven't heard, as far as the Chinese are concerned, Ag media has pivoted effortlessly from they're buying up our farms to they're losing population to buy our corn. Sometimes it's just hard to keep track of our latest existential threat. Well, when we come back, we're traveling back west to get a look at a case 930 from the Sunflower State. Tractor Tales, that happens next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Duracade Viptera. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week, we're visiting the Days Gone By Museum in Portland, Tennessee. This museum has it all, including this 1936 Keck Gonerman. There were only about 200 units built in the small town of Mount Vernon, Indiana. It's a model inn. The, the purpose is, is a big plow, but uh, most people that bought them, it ended up doing belt work. Uh, it's running sawmills or thrashers and stuff like that. Kind of a rare tractor. Uh, I think they built 210 of them. And uh, as far as we know, I think there's still 190 spoken for. Still might be some out in the bushes somewhere. I had a, a friend in Illinois that had a buddy that was kind of downsizing. I was looking for a Model N, and like I say, there's just 190 of them, so they didn't, you don't get many chances to get one bought. So when I heard about this, when I went up and looked at it and cranked it up and run it around, so we decided to bring her home. We had to work on the mag a little bit, and uh, other than that, she runs good. These things are notorious about, they steer hard when they sit and steal, and we gotta go in there and rebushing it, and, uh, but other than that, the tractor's pretty well 
a good, you know, it's a good tractor. The thing about this old gal, she was, of course, like all of them, they cranked on gas and they ran on kerosene in the day. And so uh, we put this thing on the mill just to see what it might do, sawmill. And we put five gallons of gas in it. By the time we got the log squared off and we pulled one line, we was out of gas. <laughs> so <laughs> back in the day, you know, the kerosene might have been six or seven cents a gallon. And uh, so anyway, uh, we just show it now. We don't, we don't try to really work it down more. Thank you, Greg. Well, it's a top producer tradition that started in 2000, recognizing top farming operations from across the country who not only excel in the business of farming, but are good stewards of the land and a vital piece of their community. And this year's winner carries on that tradition with a real focus on family. We'll introduce you to the 2023 Top Producer of the Year. That's next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Welcome back. We're here from Top Producer Summit in Nashville, Tennessee. We'll travel to Belzoni, Mississippi, and you'll find a farm with quite the story. Silent Shade Planting Company has roots states away, but the journey to Mississippi is one that always had a focus on family, and it's the next generation helping write the next chapter for their farm. This weekend, Clinton Griffiths shares the story of Silent Shade Planting Company, who joins quite an impressive group of top producers of the year. To tell the story of Silent Shade Planting Company, you have to start a generation earlier with Willard Jack's journey in 1979 from Canada to Mississippi. We are looking for the ability to put together a larger operation. The newly married farmer stumbled across this, less expensive land with room for growth. Willard and his wife met the challenge head on. As the operation grew, so did the family. But an unexpected obstacle resulted in a course change that put son Jeremy on a new path. He thought he wanted to work in D.C. and he worked there for a while and about the time he'd been up there a little while, I was diagnosed with cancer. And his mother said, well, son, you got two choices. You can stay in D.C., we're going to sell this if your father gets any sicker, or you can come back home to run it. And he said, well, you know, I'm not sure I really like this that well up there. I think I'll come home. And within five years, Jeremy took over the day-to-day -day operations of Silent Shade. Today, they farm across more than 11,000 acres in the Mississippi Delta. He basically runs it every day. He comes and starts crew out and he runs the operation. His sister is CFO and she looks after all that part of the business. His wife has her responsibility. My wife has her responsibilities. We've got a lot of different things going on every day. And I think that's the diversity of our operation, being cotton, corn, soybeans, rice. So there's always something going on, and the only way to keep everybody on the same page is to over-communicate as much as we can. From a variety of crops that require irrigation to aerial fertilizer applications, even moving dirt and managing their own trucking company, the management piece of Silent Shade is the key. The work is done together. Line by line, plan by plan, it's all discussed in the open, and it's not just decisions for today. Farming for the future is rooted in everything this operation does. That goes back to the decisions that we're making today might not be uh, beneficial for our lifetime, but for the future of the generation it will be. 
Through the help of technology and a dedicated team of employees, continuous improvement sprouts in every step. For years and years, we've had data flowing in. We didn't know what we could do with it all. We just had bunches of garbage data. Data that, at the time, didn't benefit the overall goal. Now, that data and subsequent technology is a tool, allowing the farm to hold sway over decisions from anywhere. Now, the great thing is we can have all this good information instantly of what we're looking at, how we're doing it. It's evident just how much Silent Shade has grown. Success that germinates by prioritizing their farm family and how they care for this land, both of which continue to be some of life's greatest gifts. Congratulations to the Jack family and Silent Shade, the 2023 Top Producer of the Year. What a family. I had the chance to meet them this week, and they really are salt of the earth. Congratulations to Jeremy and the entire family. But all three finalists really do also have the stories where they turn challenges into opportunities. We'll continue to feature those finalists on the show over the coming weeks. You can also watch and read their stories on agweb.com, but also their stories will be featured just like this. Top Producer of the Year will be the cover story of Top Producer Magazine coming up over the next year. Well, when we come back, we talk talked a lot about Brazil and South America in our first marketing roundtable discussion this weekend. But what about the trajectory of China and also when it comes to demand? Dan Bossy, Matt Bennett and Sam Taylor rejoin us from Top Producer Summit. That happens in just two minutes. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. Pioneer combines leading-edge R&D with rigorous local testing to create seed innovations proven to thrive in your fields. Pioneer. What's next happens here. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Matt, Dan, and Sam rejoining us to kind of break down these markets, look at the supply chain, a lot going on right now. Matt, let's start off with the demand side. I mean, there are some concerns when it comes to demand. We've seen corn exports pick up a little bit, but is it at the pace that we need to even hit USDA's numbers right now? You know, not necessarily. I mean, they extracted more demand, of course, uh, export demand on this January report, kind of moving in the right direction. I felt like they took a little bigger bite than maybe some folks thought that they would take as far as that report was concerned, but I think it's certainly justified. I think moving forward, you know, if China does not come in for U.S. corn, uh, we're going to have a bit of an issue uh, still reaching the USDA goal. So, you know, I'm not totally convinced that uh, 1242 is going to be your final number on, on carry. You know, corn usage for ethanol has picked back up a little bit after a little bit of a doldrums, if you will, uh, but I'm still a little bit concerned there as well. China, big question mark about China, Dan. I mean, we have not seen China come in. One, in the short term, do you think we will see China come into our markets uh, yet this marketing year? And two, with the population drop that they just acknowledged, it, does that worry you when it comes to soybean demand longer term? I, uh, so the Chinese, as uh, they are bidding today, there's something called TRQ, which is tariff rate quotas, and they can buy, this is to the private companies, and some of that may have come from U.S. corn. 
but I don't think it's going to be more than a million or two tons. Sinograin and Kafka, the two government buyers, are likely to buy either Ukrainian or Brazilian corn. They just approved Brazilian corn back late last year. So as I'm looking around, I think the Chinese will focus on those two sellers. There may be a little bit of U.S. demand, so I'm not hopeful that there's a bullish, uh, let's say, surprise from China uh, for U.S. corn. What worries me longer term, time is that if you look at the hog herd that China has today and the efficiencies that are coming from being more westernized, they may not need as many soybeans going forward. So we think about a world where soybeans demand to China is now between 92 and 100. For many years, that growth factor that used to be there may not be there anymore, which is something as we expand in South America is a concern. Sam, when, when you look at China and you look at them opening back up and what that means for the supply chain, I mean, last year that was the big news when we look at some of the active ingredients that we were missing and that was coming from China. So now seeing China come back online, that production, hopefully getting that product out, where does that help in the supply chain? Uh, I think it kind of helps across the panoply of farm inputs products, inclusive of phosphates and urea and nitrogen products as well, as they seem to probably be likely to export a little bit more onto the global market as well. Um, with the ag chem side, this is a story which has quite a long lead time to really materialize, but it's also attached to supply chains, costs of freight, which are always coming down or increasingly coming down. So I think it's a, it's a pressure relief with what's going on in China. Um, but um, you can't discount the ability for things to be corrected quite quickly with a command economy. And we don't really know how the COVID issue in China is going to play out um, and how that could be, um, how you could see a rather immediate uh, impact on certain parts of the farm inputs value chain as well. Dan, a year ago we were talking about, okay, what if we do see Russia invade Ukraine and how that scenario would play out? Well, we all know how it played out. And still now, as that is very much top of mind and how we're seeing it readjust world trade, what are you watching for 2023 and what impact do you think it could have on our commodity markets? Well, I think uh, as we think about Russia and Ukraine, let's first point out that even though there is a war, Russian Ukrainian wheat exports are only a million tons below the record, which is shocking when we think back to what we thought back last March or April. So when we look forward, I do believe Ukraine is going to have a production problem. I think they'll be lucky to get 40% of a wheat crop, uh, maybe 50, 60% of corn or sunflower. Price of uh, diesel fuel today in Ukraine is $30 a gallon. So when you think about how that plays into the farm mindset, they are not going to be planting crops. Now, the unknown is Russia. The reason that Ukrainian uh, Russian Black Sea exports combined was all about Russia. We, if they have good crops, that'll help mend that. But I will tell you that I think the wheat market, maybe you need to be a little attention because of Ukraine losses as we turn the calendar to new crop, maybe in April and May. All right, Matt, so we've talked about a lot. There's still a lot of uncertainty when it comes to fertilizer prices, when it comes to input prices as a whole, but what do you want to leave farmers with here as they head home in 2023? Well, I think there's a bit of a pendulum swift, uh, shift, if you will, whenever it comes to profit margins. We have to understand that uh, right now, it, it certainly looks like managing risk could be one of the best things you can do. Sitting on your hands, I don't advise in, in any way, shape, or form. Matt, Dan, Sam, thank you so much for joining us this weekend. Let's take a quick break, and then we have much more on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Broad adaptability, high yield potential, solid agronomics, great late season health. The foundations of a successful season start with Golden Harvest game-changing corn. 
Find your hybrid at GameChangingCorn.com. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Smart Nutrition MAP plus MST. Experience the latest, most efficient system for delivering sulfur and phosphate to meet your crop's needs with Smart Nutrition MAP plus MST. Learn more at SmartNutritionMST.com. Well, what is the key to soil health? Michelle Rook ground truths the answer as she searches how to flip your soil on your farm. Iowa farmer Michael Vitito is building on the success his father and grandfather have had building a soil health system on their farm. So our operation has been primarily no-till since the 80s. Um, and then about 10 years ago, uh, cover crops started to get into play here and kind of been playing around with that. And then the last five, six years, we've really been starting to push the cover crops and we've been 100% cover crops on all of our acres the last few years. Planting cereal rye ahead of soybeans is when they started seeing a big difference in their ability to control resistant weeds and over time cut their herbicide use. We've kind of figured out a way to not only cut back on the weed pressure, but we're also cutting back on the amount of chemicals that we're using. So we've cut our chemical use by, we're probably close to 75% right now. Um, so yeah, we're, you know, if you're only using 25% of the chemicals that you were before, all of a sudden that starts to pay for your cover crop seed and whatnot. Vidito has also had success utilizing the available forage from cover crops for his growing cattle herd. What I would like to do eventually would be to take the cattle and put them out on our cover crops and graze the cover crops uh, you know in the off season you know grazing corn stalks and grazing cereal rye and, and whatnot and then hopefully eventually uh, playing with doing some full season forage mixes with you know warm season warm season forages like sorghum sedan grass and cowpeas. Ohio producer Les Seiler has been no-tilling since 1986. Along the way, he's diversified his row crop rotations by adding alfalfa and wheat. Then in 2008, he planted cover crops, first behind wheat, then row crops. So we started using interseeding to, do, to uh, get that done, and now we uh, interseed uh, corn acres after Labor Day with an airplane. In our soybean acres, we uh, drive through with a high-boy sprayer or high boy cedar. Eller says they too are seeing better weed control with their cover crops and the increased microbiological activity in their soils has also cut another input bill. It gives us the ability to cut back on our commercial, commercial fertilizers, cut back or eliminate in some cases. I mean in this in this particular field here we haven't applied phosphorus here. Um, we just harvested our eighth corn crop with zero phosphorus at planting time. This early innovator says over the last 40 years, they've seen reduced wind and water erosion due to the aggregate stability of their soil. Plus healthier soils increase the resiliency of their crops, which translates into yield. There's more to uh, keeping your soil healthy and profitability that way, because when you do get that bad period or a dry, dry hot period, I think we can mitigate the the stress that we put on these plants and, and, and maintain yields. I think we definitely are able to maintain yields. His advice for success is to remember the soil is alive and treating it the way Mother Nature intended makes it sustainable for the future. I'm Michelle Rook reporting for U.S. Farm Report. 
Thanks, Michelle. Well, when you talk about tariffs, that was really the buzz a few years ago. So what is the latest on tariffs? That is a viewer question that John Phipps digs into and customer support. That's right after the break. An update on tariffs and inflation. Well, before the pandemic, all the talk was about tariffs. So what is the status of those tariffs today? That is a question that John Phipps is answering this weekend in customer support. This week, a question about inflation and tariffs from Gary McIntyre in Hawkeye, Iowa. Can you please explain how tariffs placed on goods coming from one country into another really works? I understand the U.S. has over 500 tariffs on various products coming from China currently. It is being considered to drop it down to the 300 range. Was some objective met that some tariffs might be canceled? Also, wouldn't tariffs contribute to inflation? Uh, these are great questions, Gary. I did an ag explainer, a multi-week job, uh, when tariffs were first imposed back in 2018. And the condensed version is pretty straightforward. Tariffs are paid by the importers to their own governments, not the exporter. China has not sent us any beautiful checks. Effectively, they have, have the same economic impact as a sales tax. Tariff reduction is being considered because, as you can see, they didn't accomplish the main goal of improving our overall trade balance, to which China is the main contributor. While our trade balance shrank in 2022, it was largely due to slower consumption and erratic supply chains, not tariffs. As for the inflationary part, the economic interruption by COVID makes the data really messy. Imposed in January or to March of 2018, by the time tariffs could be effectively enforced and have impact, China was already dealing with lockdowns and the world discovered how intricate and fragile many supply chains were. For instance, steel was one of the biggest disputes. Here is what global steel trade indexed to the year 2000 looks like. COVID simply changed everything. Tariffs almost certainly contributed to inflation, but were soon a part of a mixture of lost production, shifting supply chains, and consumers just slowing their purchases. It really doesn't matter what steel costs if no cars are being made, for example. Many of those tariffs remain in place, especially with China. But as economies recovered, trade flows shifted. Tariffed products were substituted for, other sources were found, and flows of trade found ways, as always, around tariff barriers. Remaining tariffs on Chinese imports to the U.S. are now bargaining chips in much more complex political, economic, and even military policy negotiations. In the end, I still agree with economist Scott Linscombe. Tariffs not only impose immense economic costs, but also fail to achieve their primary policy aims and foster political dysfunction along the way. Thanks, John. And don't forget, if you want to watch more of John's commentary, you can do that on our Farm Journal YouTube page. Well, last year, there was a lot of buzz and talk about glufosinate and glyphosate and where those supplies set. So this year, are we facing a glufosinate shortage? We sat down with a representative from BASF to discover the answer. That's next.
Well, talking to weed scientists this fall, some chemistry supplies seem to be in better shape, but there was still concern about glufosinate. Well, this weekend, we are setting the record straight. Hearing firsthand from BASF, who tells us there is no shortage of glufosinate this year. As farmers prepare to plant this spring, 2023 isn't shaping up to be as much of a guessing game in terms of certain input supplies. Happy to tell you we feel very confident in our ability to see an increase in supply of Liberty for the 2023 growing season. Kate Greif with BASF says growers still need to talk to their local retailers, but on a national level, the situation has significantly improved in just a year's time. It's also all about shipping and logistics. Um, industry, the majority of, of, of Liberty, but the majority of many of our products get sprayed um, in a very short window within a calendar season. And so what we've really focused on doing as an organization is expanding our shipping windows so we do have product moving throughout the entire year rather than trying to get it just in just in time to the farmers um, at the time when they need it. It wasn't just active ingredients that posed sourcing problems last year. It was even the packaging of those products. We saw things as simple as um, cap hangups on getting caps for the jugs in the last two years. And so really what we've learned from that is plan earlier, uh, plan more often, and then ultimately we've built a lot of contingency plans within our production systems to ensure that we're going to be able to get these products to farmers and to get them to them timely. Well, the other big question right now, cash rents. Just how high can cash rents go? In some areas, we're seeing eye-popping prices already, and now it's cash rent auctions creating buzz. We'll take a look at cash rents next weekend on the show. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. A big thank you to our friends at Top Producer for allowing us to partake in the event this year. We'll see you next weekend as we head back to the studio to work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.